Hi, I'm Alice from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University, Belfast. Welcome to our podcast, The Theory of the Postdoc Evolution. This episode is an extract from a careers event held in November 2020, focusing on recruitment agencies. You'll hear from the experience of two recruiters involved in helping candidates find roles in health, engineering, and data-related industries. So our first speaker is Claire Collinson, who is Core Science and Engineering Business Manager in an agency called Kinetica. And our second guest is Ryan Queen, who is Managing Director in Vanras, which is um, a recruitment company based in, in Belfast. So Ryan and Claire, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and for coming and talk to us today. Could you give us an introduction to your agency? So what is the type of sector you are working with, the type of employers uh, you're recruiting for, uh, maybe starting with Claire? Um, so we've been formed since 2000, so about 20 years, and we generally focus on technical positions. So on my sector, it's more science and engineering positions, predominantly in the healthcare industry. We also have a separate side of the business that focuses on commercial positions. So that's anybody with sort of a technical background who might want to go into, for example, a sales or a marketing or a business development role. Okay, and for you, Ryan? Yeah, so we're the largest independent uh, professional recruitment firm in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm the managing director uh, on, on the IT side. In a previous life, I was a Java software engineer, uh, and I've been lucky enough to see the evolution of the Belfast market over the past 15, well, now 16 years. Uh, and Van Raff was set up in 20, well, 20 years ago now, in year 2000. So, um, yeah, we've had, a, we've had a good run over the past few years. We've been very lucky to represent some great people. And what are the types of, of companies then? Uh, well, first, do you work only with companies or also with the public sector? Or are, are they big companies, small companies, a mix of everything? Uh, so, yeah, we work with everyone. Uh, foreign direct investment companies, companies that are established in Northern Ireland, SMEs, we work with the public sector as well. Um, quite a lot of the companies that we work with don't have the time and the resources to find a specialist. And if it's a someone with a, you know an excellent academic profile that they're after, um, you know, nine times out of ten they'll come to a specialist agency for that. Uh, because you could be, you know, you could be spending months looking for the person that has the very specific skill set after. The interesting thing over the past probably five or six years is there's there's been a a raft of open source technologies that have become very commercial. So technologies like Python and Amazon Web Services have merged together and you're getting a lot of PhDs that are moving straight into data science or straight into engineering from Queen's and other universities uh, without any run up. They don't have to have any commercial experience. So we're seeing a you know an influx of those type of roles in the past four or five years in particular that's been really strong where the person does not have to have the commercial experience. They can just take ownership of the job straight away and get cracking because some of the jobs are in their infancy, things like data science, you know, it's not it's not a mature job sector, it's, it's still fairly young. Um, so we, we tend to see uh, clients be a lot more flexible in that sense. Okay, and we um, we work with quite a, a wide range of companies, so anything from a, a university spin out, so, you know, where there may be a headcount of only two or three people up to you know, huge global blue chip companies. Um, we generally focus more on the private sector rather than the public sector. 
Um, to give you an idea, in terms of the sort of vacancies I said, it was commercial. We do things in R&D, in quality, production, engineering, um, technical administration, regulatory affairs, product safety and clinical. So quite a, a range, essentially any sort of position that you'd need a, a science or an engineering background to do. Yes, brilliant. Thank you. And so, so those are the types of clients you work with. And of course, your role for your clients is to identify the right candidates for them. Uh, but what do you uh, offer as a, a recruitment agency for candidates who might come to you and who are looking for a job? So, yeah, you're quite right. We work on two sides. So we work with the client to try and find the, the suitable candidate for, for their position. But we also work with individual candidates to try and find the, the right position for them. So when we work with individual candidates, it's really more with candidates that possess a, a very sought after skill, because then what you do is you, you market them out to your, your existing clients, knowing that those people are in high demand. So on the other side, it's generally more driven by the client in terms of the agency. So I guess people coming from PhDs and postdocs, you know, they they may fall into the highly sought after skilled category, depending on what their their research subject has been in, or they may fall into the other category where they're more entry level and they're going for those entry level positions, in which case it's more client driven. I think I'll probably add in as well, Alice, we, because we've had 20 years in the local market and the, you know, the economy here has grown so much, particularly in the past 15, one of the interesting areas that a recruitment company kind of falls into um, is that whenever someone sends in their CV, we have a past track record of placing people with some of the similar backgrounds. So, you know, one of the, the most interesting blogs on, on LinkedIn that seemed quite recently was about, you know, reaching out to someone who is has your equivalence in terms of degree or profile three or four years down the line and grabbing them for a coffee. So we, we're almost that to the degree, you know, we, we will pattern match someone based on their profile with other companies and other sectors that we've dealt with. And sometimes they're not that obvious, um, but it, it's it's good that we've, we've placed so many people and we've worked with so many employers that when somebody comes in, we can try and relate that to what we've done in the past and say, well, look, here's four or five options for you, kind of straight off. And that, that was something whenever I was a graduate, I finished my master's and I, you know, I went to chat to the advisors at, at university or, or even at the training and employment agency at the time, I never got a sense that they had spoke to 100 companies or 150 companies or a thousand individuals to get a sense of what I should do next. And, and that's something that a recruitment company can kind of do very well, I think. Yes, definitely. And I guess because you have all those links with the employers, you know what the recruitment market is like and what it's not just a question about what does a candidate want to do, but also what are people actually recruiting for? And I guess that leads very well to my next question, which would be for people who have a background with a PhD and some maybe even postdoctoral experience. What are the types of roles that are in high demand at the moment in your sector? So, I mean, strangely, that the ones in the highest demand tend to be um, quality and regulatory affairs positions in my sector at the moment. Um, regulations are becoming much more stringent, so you'll generally find that there's, there's more jobs than there are candidates on the market. However, those sorts of positions usually demand experience. So from the PhD and postdoc perspective, I generally find that postdocs and PhDs get and placed more often in um, development type positions, so R&D, 
Um, however, those positions tend to be in quite high demand because they're deemed the more interesting roles. You know, I also find that PhDs and postdocs are more likely to be placed in university spin-out companies than the big global companies. You know, I think when, you know, when the founders of a company are academic themselves and they see the, you know, the benefit in having somebody with that high level of education who can go into that, that amount of detail. Um, I generally find that in production-based positions and a position where it's quite fast-paced, clients tend to steer away from people who have been postdoc or PhDs because it's very much, um, you know, a quicker pace and it's it's less less about the detail and more about the pace. And for yourself, Ryan? For us, um, anything with programming associated with it, anything with uh, you know, quants or miles associated with it in terms of uh, academic profile. So we, we've placed lots of people from physics and maths, PhDs at, at Queen's, um, chemistry, biochemistry, anything where there's a, a, you know, a high programmatic factor there, it's always of interest. And again, because Python and some like R and MATLAB, um, because they're, they're so integral to, to, to the, the, uh, the dissertation side or the, um, the PhD side, a lot of our employers will will use that as leverage to, to start in their career. So, um, quite a, you know, quite a lot of the successful companies in Belfast and Northern Ireland is, are, are great at cross training. So they'll they'll leverage off your MATLAB or your Python experience, and they'll give you a more commercial skill. But it's almost like first principles have been taught already during your academic profile, and they just need to top it up. So they're always happier to do that. Um, if they think there's a base level, it's already there. So, you know, past four or five years, we've just we've seen a, a complete surge of those data-centric roles, um, and it's, it's not going away. You know, it, it continues to be something that employers are looking for. Yes, data is everywhere in today's world, yes. isn't it? So, if we think a little bit about the process in which you identify candidates for your clients, how do you go doing that? Do you uh, use online platforms to advertise the roles that you have or do you directly search for candidates? Um, it, it's a mix of both. It really depends on the, the role and, um, you know, the, the location um, has a huge factor as well. Um, you know, areas of the UK like Southeast England, the Central Belt of Scotland, for example, um, around the, the Manchester and Liverpool areas, there's generally multiple candidates in those areas, so it's quite easy to find people. When you're getting into central Wales or East Anglia or the Highlands of Scotland, you know, when things are a lot more remote, it's much more difficult to find candidates. So you're more likely to, to advertise in those areas, you know, cover literally all platforms to do that. In terms of the general platforms that we use, our database is probably the go-to for most, just because, um, you know, we've been established for quite some time, so have a lot, of, a lot of candidates on there. Then I guess it would probably be LinkedIn, um, which has certainly become, um, you know, from online platforms, the front runner. In, in the last dec decade or so. And then we use um, job boards like eMed Careers and CV Library. Um, eMed Careers is part of Total Jobs and Job Site, um, but there's obviously that healthcare focus, which you know we find quite useful due to due to our business. Yeah, very similar. Uh, we obviously use all the, the uh, job sites in Northern Ireland, plus um, we've got quite a lot of traffic on our own website. About 50% of the candidates that we see are registered directly on the Van Rath website um, and most 
quite a, quite a high number of them are via referral. So you know we've done a good job with someone that they know, and uh, we've helped prep somebody for an interview, and then they've referred us to their friend. That's that, that's been a huge success for us over the years by doing a good job. Good people know good people, so that we get referred in that way. Yes, so actually being registered directly with your agency is actually a, a good way to get picked up when, when a role comes up. So would you advise people who even maybe haven't finished their PhD yet or uh, are currently within their postdoctoral contract with still a few months going, but would you advise to them to uh, register with agencies like yours and to update their LinkedIn profiles, etc., in preparation for getting uh, a job? Yeah, it's like th there's a few things that went away over the past ten years in terms of they're they're not as 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 cool to say or they're they're not as hip. But you know, career is a word that doesn't get mentioned a lot. Everybody talks about getting a job and you know my next job and I seen a job here and they actually don't focus a lot on that word. And you know, when I graduated, we, we tailored our CVs and we tailored cover letters for the job that we were most interested in or passionate about. And I, you know, I'll use the analogy with. With candidates, if you wanted to go and work for Google, you would approach the interview in a certain style, and you need to approach every interview like that because guess what? You may end up working for Google. Uh, so you know, it, it really is key. I, I would, you know, I get I've worked with some fantastic PhDs as a software engineer, and I was shocked and stunned at how clever that the people who studied maths and physics were. Um, naturally, just very very clever uh, people. So you know. They're the best of what we have to offer. You know, they're the, the academic stars, the intelligentsia. They're the people that we should have in the, you know, out there as a, as a, you know, as a badge. What, what, what the local economy is, is capable of. So, they should be the people that are spending the most time crafting that CV and making sure that, as you say, a year before they apply for a job, they're set up. They've got a high probability of getting interviews and clients that they want. Don't leave it to the last minute, you know, and it's an easy one to say. And I know postdocs and PhDs have a lot on their plate and a lot to do, but it takes four or five hours. It doesn't take months. Yes, yeah, so having uh, a, a CV and an, an application updated all, all the time. Um, yeah. As you said, both of you, you use online platforms also like LinkedIn to search for candidates. Do you have any tips for uh, our listeners today to maximize their chances of their profile being noticed by recruiters like you when you're looking for candidates? Um, well, first of all, make your ensure that your profile states that you're open to opportunities. And um, I certainly know that when you know when vacancies land across our desks and we're incredibly busy, you know, instead of taking 12 hours to search the entire LinkedIn platform for the right skills, quite often we will just click the people who are open to new opportunities. So you're you're more likely to find somebody. So definitely do that. There are ways that they can stack the odds in their favour. So, for example, if you put something on your profile about the fact that you're you're looking for work and, um, you know, the fact that you may be more open to positions in in lots of different areas, you can add your if, if you're wanting a lot of contact, you can add your email address and your mobile phone number to your profile if you wish. That means that instead of a, a recruiter having to send you a message, they can quite simply pick up the phone or and, and speak to you straight away, which, you know, certainly stacks the odds in your favor because we're all pretty busy anyway trying to look for people so it, it depends on the um, how quickly we find candidates. Also make sure that your photographs professional 
um, you know, remember that it is going to be you know, prospective employers that will check you out on LinkedIn as well as on social media before calling you for interview. Make sure that your profile is comprehensive so that if you've actually covered something, it's in the skills section and in, in the body of writing under that um, that position or that particular role. Um, I mean, they're probably the main things. Yeah, Ryan, do you have any any other tips to add to this list? The other, they were very good, Claire. That's, that's probably exactly the, the advice I give. But I think the, the other thing I like to see as well, the biggest reservation that employers might have is that um, someone coming from an academic profile chose that profile because they wanted to end up in academia. Others wanted to leverage off that profile to go into the commercial world. So I'd want to see that in your LinkedIn profile. You know, I'd want to see the fact that you know you've you've been dedicated to a PhD, you've worked hard during your your PhD, and now you want to use that license in a in a domain or a sector that you're passionate or interested about. And then the other things like having your GitHub linked or any any extra I suppose any extra learning material, whether it's the Harvard CS50, whatever it is that is on there that demonstrates that you've got a good attitude towards continual learning. Because one of the biggest other fears with a PhD is you've finished, <laughs> you know, your, your learning experience is over. And in technology, that's never the case because technology is ever evolving. So I'd want to see something on there that shows someone is very commercial. They've got a good attitude towards continual learning and they're trying to leverage off their academic profile in the commercial world and they're not scared of that. I'd put that right up front and center. Tell somebody what you're trying to do and don't be scared of it. That's, you know, from a little point of view, I think that has to be there. Yeah, enthusiasm and motivation is key. Claire, you wanted to add something? I'm sorry, yeah, I just wanted to add that if you have collaborated with an industrial company on a postdoc or PhD and you're allowed to add that, obviously with their permission, make sure that's on there because any sort of interaction that you've had with industry beforehand, it, it stacks you up in your favour as well. Yeah, that's a great point, yeah. And in your experience, what are the key skills that your clients are looking for in, in candidates? So, I mean, generally, when it comes to postdocs and PhDs, they're wanting to see candidates that are have the attributes to transfer into industry. So very much, um, you know, people who are, have good communication skills, people who can, you know, look at the bigger picture and know that actually when you're developing a product in industry, Sometimes it's more important to get a product out the door at 70% because that's what the market demands than go for the 100% and spend hundreds of thousands more pounds on the development. Because when you look at the market, they're only wanting a 70% product. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. So someone who can, you know, understand and appreciate the commercial and um, the commercial side of a, a product and business as well. And um, so I guess what we generally find with PhDs and postdocs is there are some who tend to be very, very, very focused on the detail. And, you know, because they've had, you know, spent five, ten years, whatever, focusing on one particular area of research, they've got to go into such in-depth detail, they find it difficult to see past that sometimes. And I think being able to display that you have those those skills is, is, is important. I think that's what most of our clients have issues with when it comes to postdocs, that they wouldn't be able to keep up with the pace of, and pace of industry and that they'll be too detail focused. And in your, in your experience, Ryan? Yeah, I think a big one is, is patience. Um, you know, 
you're going to leave an area where you're an expert and you've just you know heavily invested a lot of your life to go into an area where you're a novice again so you have to demonstrate that you've got the patience to do that enthusiasm and passion you've already demonstrated because you've you've went to phd level in something that you're talented at but you've also got an interest in so all companies love the fact that you may bring that enthusiasm with you into what they're doing and you need to be verbose about that you need to, to spell that out the other thing is you know very clever people whether they've got a phd or not they don't like to be bored so i probably say you know whilst you're interviewing you're also interviewing them is you know is this going to be a role that challenges you because your first role post doc or once you finish your phd I think sets the cadence for you for the rest of your career. So it has to be challenging. Um, and those are things that I think whenever you're being interviewed, you also want to interview back a little bit to work out, is this the place that I can do that? That's that's a very good point. If you want to be happy in your role, you need to make sure that it sits your personality and how challenging an environment you like to be part of. So we hear a lot of people saying that employers in industry tend to refrain hiring candidates who worked in academia for too long. Is it actually true or not? It really depends on the client. Um, you know, we're all individuals at the end of the day, so people have their own opinions. Um, there are some clients who may have had, you know, a, a not so positive experience employing someone in a PhD who didn't work out well, in which case they have that preconceived idea that they're all going to be like that. Um, as I said, the trends that we we see are that, you know, spin out companies where they have, you know, academics in them, you know, in terms of the founders, they tend to be, you know, very, very keen to secure people who have, have a high level of education. Um, but I say it just depends on the company, really, and the, the individual hiring managers, because they're all individuals. Yes, you would agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, I think if the relevance is in someone's profile and background, they'll get to interview stage. That, that, that part of it is OK. And the fact that more people now have PhDs and that the PhD is, is shorter, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a different dynamic. You know, you have to get through it quicker. You have, you know, there are more people that do it. So because it's, it's, it's more common, I also think, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, a PhD was an anomaly, whereas now it's not so much of an anomaly. And if you look at some of the leaders, especially in technology, lots of them have PhDs. So um, it, it's not as big a it's not as big a blocker as it used to be, in my opinion. If we go back to thinking about tips that you could share with, with potential candidates here because you're reviewing a lot of cvs for a lot of candidates that you're trying to place what are the big mistakes that people with a phd or with postdoctoral experience tend to make when preparing their applications it, the thing that we see most is from people coming out of academia is that it's not clear from their cv what experience they have so they often um, they often have their their CV set with with skills sections, languages, and techniques, etc. But you know, for example, if they put HPLC on their CV, you don't know if it's in the skills section. You don't know whether they've done a you know a thirty minute undergrad practical with it, or they spent five years on their PhD using it every single day. So it's quite difficult to determine where the skills come from and what sort of level they are. So with the industrial CVs, you'll generally have the, the skills and the techniques that you've used under each position. So it's very clear how you've used them, how long you've used them for, etc. So it's um, 
well, just just so it's very just so it's very clear. I mean, I know that there was a, a statistic that I read a few years ago that a hiring manager takes on average seven seconds to decline the CV. So it doesn't leap out at them that it's a yes or a maybe. Then you're going to go into that decline pile. Yes. Yeah, so making sure to be very explicit with the type of skills uh, yeah. you have. Ryan, is that in your sector? Is it the same? Yeah, I think the, like um, we, we can provide some kind of dummy CVs to, to give you guys an example. But the very best CV is the one that's explicit. You know, what what are you trying to do with your career? Like what what have you set out to do over the next few years? Because this is a segue point. You're moving from academia. You're moving into the commercial sector. You're moving into, you know, the private sector. How has your background up to this point uh, enabled you to do that? And then, are you so? Are you commercially aware of the person who's reading it? Like the seven second rule. If somebody takes a look at someone's CV in seven seconds and it's super, you know, scientific, or there's lots of papers on there, and it's it's not that obvious of why you've applied to a job in a, in a fintech business or why you've applied to a job in a, a you know a, a company that deals with dynamic web portals or you know I, i'm a big believer in going back to the career statement tailoring the cv for the job that you've applied to taking a list of requirements and making sure that they're on that cv um, and being creative with it and you know showing like phds and people with first class honors always go the extra mile to get their first or get their PhD, but they don't go the extra mile to craft the CV. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yes, that's true. Now that we've talked a little bit about the applications, uh, when it comes to the interview process, I guess people who are listening to us today, they are used to uh, the academic uh, interview. C can you give us an idea of the different types of interview processes that you've seen in clients that that you are recruiting for uh, i i assume sometimes you may have some practical sessions some interviews that require meeting many different people presentations skill based do, do you can you give us a little uh, overview of the, the types of interview processes that you know about yeah sure uh, so th that's a great area for discussion and it's it's one that i think we've we've built our business off um, and Certainly, I was always terrible at answering competency-based questions or some more generic questions when it was in a, when it was in a technical interview. But um, in terms of how we prepare people and, and, and what to look out for, um, the first thing that you need to do before you jump on any interview is, is, is think, I could be against 10 people here. You know, how can I stand out? So do all the basic stuff. Look up the person's profile on LinkedIn. Look at what the company does. Look at who their competitors are. Do they, have they hired anybody with a similar profile to me? So this is even a step before jumping onto the interview site. Uh, if you do get an interview for that, then you've preloaded that information. You're, you're already a, a step ahead. But um, in terms of the, the preparation for the interview, you will get a job specification. The essential requirements, you have to have those nailed. You have, if there are technologies or words or you know acronyms that are there that you don't know, you have to be at least aware of them. On the desirable section, if you really want to do well, know that as well. So the preferred, 100%, the desirable. But then you have to think about the narrative. And the narrative is something that's really, really obvious, but not obvious. The person has to come off the the, this, the video call or the, or the uh, interview in person and think, this is someone that can contribute. This person has actually 
what let's call it courting us as a client. They're courting us. They're not just sending their CV to the business down the road. They've actually had an intrinsic look at what we do and they've prepared themselves for that today. And even that alone, by just preparing 20% better than the next person, you're going to get the job. Uh, the, the, the questions, are, the generic questions around, you know, talking about a difficult situation, or how you work with teams, um, you know, your interpersonal skills, your work pattern style, all those, they're actually easy questions to answer, but nobody prepares for them, so they're difficult. So, you know, that, that's, <laughs> that's something that we can certainly help with, but I think I'd probably take a step back and I would, um, have a commercial look at the interview process and prepare, court the client, make sure that you know as much as you can about the job spec and about what they do. And then we would help you with the cross-referencing part to say, look, what's the most likely question that's going to come up? Why do you want to do this now at this point in your career? That's the key question to always have an answer for, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you, Claire, do you have anything to add to all this? And so, so the main thing I'd say to anybody is make sure that you're an expert on yourself. The number of times people leave an interview and, and they call me with feedback and say, oh, you know, they asked me for an example of something. And as soon as I walked out the room, it popped into my head straight away. But I couldn't think of it when I was in the interview under pressure. So the first thing I say to candidates is read your CV, refresh your memory on all the dates, the techniques you used, why you used them absolutely everything that you did and make sure that you're an expert and you can answer any questions on yourself. So even things as simple as, you know, what make and model instrument you use for your PhD, you know, something as simple as that, make sure that you have the detail and then be prepared to obviously look at the company, have a good answer as to what do you know about the company? Why do you want to work there? Why do you want to work in this role? why would you be a suitable candidate for this role and then what i always say to people is look at the the job description and the, the person specification break down every single duty and responsibility in that job description and the requirements and think of bullet point examples where you have that experience and i say bullet points it's much easier to to memorise something as bullet points so that you can use it for various different questions and then you should have all of these examples of different things that you've used you that you can um, use for individual questions whether it's a competency based question it's more scenario based or whether it's a technical question yeah just something just what Claire was reminding me of something there like PhDs are apologetic sometimes about how hard they've worked and how clever they are and how much they've had to do on their own and I, I, I would you know, I would suggest that you, you kind of kill that tree off. You know, if you are a hard worker, if you've had to learn technologies or languages or skills on your own, you know, spell it out. Like, don't, don't leave that up for, you know, to be it. Be very clear about it. Like, you know, I don't know whether it's a PhD thing or a, or a Northern Ireland thing or, or, or whatever, but we don't tend to like to say we work really hard, <laughs> you know, and, and we leave an interview and then the feedback comes from the client. I'm not sure whether that person is just massively clever or has worked hard their whole career. So, you know, spell that part out. If, you know, if that's an asset that you have, and I imagine 90% of PhDs are, are higher or in that bracket, tell them that you work hard. Um, we've got a question in the chat. I think that would be for you, Ryan, uh, from a first year PhD in uh, agri-economics. Uh, but not in software or uh, IT area, but is asking, is it possible for people like us to get into core IT areas? 
they have seen many types of skill-based courses like Python or Java, etc. Is it possible uh, route to IT training? Yeah, it's funny if you go on the LinkedIn and you look up, you know, who's the lead data scientist in a company they're interested in, or who's the software architect, or who's the director of engineering. Half of those people haven't studied computer science. They studied hard subjects, maths, physics, you know, bioscience. They've studied lots of difficult things. So, you know, the, there's now more of a platform. There's a, a great, there was a great podcast I actually listened to quite recently by a guy who's at MIT called Nicholas Negoprunti, and he said that the the Harvard CS50, the open source technologies that are out there. They're out there for PhDs. They're out there for master's students to go and get that experience of what it's like to code. And the the barrier to entry to coding is really, really shallow. It's 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 not difficult. Python, uh, for example, was created for PhDs. It was created, you know, to to get over complex algorithms whenever MATLAB or whatever wouldn't do the job. So. You know, I, th I think the barrier entry is, is really slight, but again, it goes back to if you're going to do that, you know, do it with your, the commerciality in mind, pair it with something like Amazon Web Services or, you know, pick a subject that can demonstrate what you're fully capable of and then host it on a GitHub, have that GitHub link in your CV and in your LinkedIn. So if, if I get your CV and I'm an engineer, the very first thing I'm going to click on is your GitHub. I'm going to look at your code. It almost seven seconds, two seconds, I'm looking at your code. So if you did something like a Harvard CS50 or one of the online courses and then started to post code, fantastic. That's perfect. That's the perfect combination. We talked a little bit about some uh, myths around the, you know, the recruitment process for PhD and, and postdocs a bit earlier. A question that I often get from, from postdocs who come to see me are whether for people with experience like they do have and with a PhD, is it usual to actually get a job directly at the, le uh, the similar level at where they are in academia? Or do you feel like candidates often have to maybe get into a company through a kind of graduate level job and then progress much quicker within the company once they're in? Um, so if, if candidates are very, very flexible in terms of the type of role that they're going for, the location, the salary, etc., they they generally find positions much more quickly and especially if they're able to go anywhere in terms of geographical location, it's less likely that they need to step down because there are mo so many more options that are more relevant to, to what they've done and so they don't need to step down. If a candidate's very restricted in terms of location, the sort of position that they, they are looking for and um, in terms of the general sector, it's more likely that they need to be flexible in terms of the level. Yes, is that your impression too, Ryan? Yeah, I have seen someone leave a senior level in academia and gain a senior level in technology, but the parallels between what they were doing in academia and what the company did from a domain perspective were really similar. Um, so it's rare. To be honest, in technology, it, it, it's difficult to walk in and do those two things at the same time, become a technologist and learn a domain. You know, so if someone was moving into a domain, there's no experience to take a senior position, even if they've got a fantastic profile, will be really difficult. So 
it would be more likely the flexibility element would, uh, would be, be more likely that you'd have to come in, learn the, the skill set and then progress as, as Claire said. Yes, and usually that tends to actually happen much quicker than for an actual uh, entry level level candidate. Is there any other type of advice you would give to the people who are listening today to help them find a job outside of academia, to help them transition or to help exploring the type of options that are available to them? Because often it's quite difficult to get an idea of what the market is like and, and what you should aspire for or what you may have a chance to get in terms of careers and roles. I always like to, to advise people to get on their bike. So go, you know, go on to Glassdoor, look at some of the better reviews for the companies that you've maybe heard about that, that are in the press. You know, um, LinkedIn and SyncNI are, are great places for posting the success stories of, of SMEs, uh, FDIs in Northern Ireland and, and local companies. I try and highlight some companies that I would be interested in and then I would look in those companies to see are there individuals with similar profiles and I'd go and meet them. You know, I, it's so encouraging to go and chat to another PhD and say, look, I'm here. And that person said, I was exactly where you were three years ago. I love what I'm doing. I'm really well paid and it's a, it's a lucrative career and I'm not stifled. And, you know, for the next 20 years, I can do what I want. So uh, like recruiters can do that as well. Like we do that a lot. You know, when people come in, we um, we steer them towards, you know, work we've done before with, with talented candidates. But I think it means a lot to go in and meet somebody that is actually three or four years down the line and find out what they did. And they'll always have a message for you. They'll always have something that resonates where you go, okay, there's a step in between here that I need to do to, to get the job that I'm after. So if it was me, I was trying to think, what would I do? If I had committed that much time to academia, I would be really careful about my first role. I probably can't emphasize that enough. Your first role will be really demonstrative for the next 30 years. So, you know, you need to get that one right. Yes, and from your side, Claire? Um, I mean, this may be doing us out of a job, but I mean, if I was a postdoc or a PhD, what I do is I'd look at the companies that I want to work for, those that were related to, related to the research that I'd done, and I, I'd contact them directly. You know, I'd be proactive in my search. If I had the confidence to do that, that would be my first port of call. And um, if I didn't have the confidence to do that, I may go to a, a recruiter who could help me. But, you know, I'd start off very, very specific and look at the, um, you know, the companies that I wanted to work for and those that were most related to what my background is. And, um, you know, like Ryan said, you know, your first role, you know, you need to make sure you get that right. You can be pigeonholed if you stay in the wrong industry for too long you know if you get your your first role in an industry you don't really want to be in unless you are very very focused and you ensure that you're constantly wanting to move to the industry you do when you make the the actions and decisions to move towards that very very quickly you'll blink and 10 years would have gone away and you're pigeonholed in that industry we have another question here how many public sector groups and NGOs use as recruiter? Do you know? Is it something that you would be aware of? And uh, it seems that many uh, recruitment agencies are focused on, on technology and science and commercial sectors than, than charities. But do you know if if any uh, uses recruitment agencies like yours? Yeah, we, we recruit in the public sector. Um, we have two desks of recruiters that specialize in, in public sector roles. OK, thanks. What, what would you say from PhD and postdoc compared to 
more graduate candidates that you would have, what do you think is the added value for your clients? What do they uh, enjoy in, in that profile of candidate? So for me, you know, that few extra years of maturity um, is, is fantastic. You know, to, to bring someone into a team that is very level-headed and is patient and, you know, has, has I suppose, pushed themselves to the level of a PhD, I don't see the negatives in that. You know, it's a very positive, and even when from a client perspective, you know, if a company is uh, engaging with other clients and, you know, you have two or three PhDs in the team and they're chatting to another team and that team has two or three PhDs, you know, there's a there's a synergy there and um, companies that are heavily involved in research, specifically in technology, you know, how many PhDs do they have? And if they have them, they're making use of them. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really positive market for PhDs, in my opinion. And 10 years ago, the, the companies weren't as open to suggestion. If someone studied marine biology or someone studied something a bit left to centre, they didn't get a lot of credit for it, whereas now they do. I think it's a more open market for being able to hit the reset button in your career. Do you feel similarly, Claire? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, the thing that I always find quite a selling point for PhDs and postdocs is they have a much more um, considered approach. So I guess, you know, as Ryan said, it's more like the, the maturity of having, you know, being that bit older before they're going into industry, you know, they're, they're generally more professional, less impulsive, um, you know, and like I said, just very considered in their approach. The, the way I usually sell people who have done PhDs and postdocs um, to, to clients is that I say that they're clearly committed. You know, they clearly have, you know, they've gone on after doing their, their degree or the master's and they've gone to do a PhD. And a lot of them, you know, once they've gone to do a postdoc as well, they'll, they'll see the um, through to the end of the contract of that postdoc before looking for something else. You know, so I know a lot of clients, you know, they want a candidate who's going to stay with them. So, you know, the commitment's a big thing that I push. Yeah, I think like the, the extra commitment part, you know, I always try and think if it was me, genuinely if it was me, if I put in the extra work to get a PhD as opposed to say a master's, then whenever you do go into the industry, you, you want to hit the fast forward button because you've missed out a few years. You know, so, you know, I think that clients are aware of that as well. And if, if it's being talked about in an interview and the person is aware of that fact to say, look, I, you know, I'd almost like 16 months experience or 18 months experience in 12 months if I can you know I had a client that that heard that in an interview one time and resonated with them because the person had a PhD so you've committed to push yourself academically and now you know some of the people that you maybe did a master's with are two years ahead of you commercially so that that, that period of when you just graduate and you want to hit the go button on your career you've got you know you have to fast track for you to catch up, you kind of have to keep the cadence there or to keep the speed in your career. We got a few questions that came up. So uh, one quick one, maybe for Claire to start with. Do you find that clients are open to applications from people who haven't yet uh, finished their PhD and have a few months left, for example, six months? Well, in, in that instance, I wouldn't necessarily apply to a specific role. Most, uh, most companies will want the role filled before then if they're advertising at the moment. Um, what I do is I'd contact 
the person who you think would be most relevant within that client. So go on LinkedIn, have a look and see, you know, who the, the director or the manager of the department you're wishing to work in is, and then send them a message, introduce yourself, you know, say what you're doing, what you've been doing, you know, what you're hoping to move into in six months time, and then contact them closer to the time, you know, make that connection early. Yes, and actually, well, I'll follow up with you again, Claire, because there's a, another question uh, in the chat that's really relevant to what you just said. When you directly ask companies, uh, we often hear about an advertised position. So as a recruiter, do you know some of these or are actually all the positions that you recruit for already advertised? No, they're definitely not always advertised. Um, you know, certainly I mean, to give you an example, if we have an, an entry level graduate position and we, we advertise it on the Friday afternoon, you'll come in on the Monday morning and have hundreds of applications. You know, absolutely hundreds. Everybody in the UK would have applied to it who are a graduate and you physically just don't have the time to go through all of those. That I reply to every single application that I receive and I just wouldn't be able to do that in that case. Um, so generally, if it's something that's a fast turnaround to where you're quite, it would be quite easy to find candidates for, you'll, you'll have sent CVs over and probably have it nearly filled before an advert expires anyway. So it, it's generally more the, the specialised roles and the more um, complex roles that you think you're going to have more trouble advertising. Well, that's certainly what it is on our side. Yep. We, we tend to put the adverts up because the mainly on the Van Roth website gets a lot of traffic. Um, and a lot of candidates are passive and we might not have their CVs. So, um, yeah, we, 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 we get a roll in. Now, it mightn't be that day. And as you know, as Claire said, we might try the people that we know first and, and then advertise the roll later in the day. Maybe it's not posted to the next day. Um, the first thing we would do on a, a more straightforward role is we would, we would try and hit up the live candidates that we've been speaking to and then advertise it. So there's maybe a delay of a day, but it's not usually longer than that. Great, thanks. We've got a question here regarding international PhDs or, or postdocs, because in some roles, uh, the selection criteria may include uh, be eligible to, to work in the UK. Is, is it one of the criteria that affects a lot the selection of candidates? Depending on the client, if the client has a, a track record or has previously uh, sponsored uh, individuals that don't have visas, it's not a problem. It's just finding those clients in the industries that the PhDs are most, most interested in. But, you know, I always, like, I'll rev we'll review every CV based on merit and we'll always uh, speak to the client and try and get a steer on it, you know. Um, it is more difficult, but it's genuine and it's trickier. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that the right to work in the UK is, you know, all of most of my clients would look at people who had the right to work in the UK first. Um, you know, and what they'd have to do is they have to do a labour market search anyway if they're going to sponsor anyone. So you, that's just something that they have to do, make sure that there's no British or EU nationals, um, you know, with the skills get, skill set first. And then some of the bigger clients, you know, for more difficult roles are open to sponsorship, but they need to do that labour market review first. Uh, it seems that recruitment companies operate within specific sectors. From an applicant's perspective, what would be the best way to identify recruiters within your specific field? Ask Google. <laughs> look, look at the jobs. Look at what's being posted. Um, you know, if go on to NI Jobs, one of the job platforms, um, click the agency button and work out 
you know, who recruits in your specialism. Um, yeah, but that, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, one thing I'd add to that is, you know, I'd, I'd ask people around me, get recommendations. Um, with any sort of sector, you know, there are those that, that operate more professionally, you know, and, and those who are less professional. So, you know, ask for recommendations. Um, you know, people who um, your, your friends, your colleagues have worked with before they've had a good experience with. Is there anything, uh, Claire and Ryan, that we haven't covered today and that you think would be helpful for our PhD students and postdocs listening to find their next career and transition out of academia? I mean, what one point I'd say when it comes to interview is, you know, your your skills and your CV and your experience will get you through the door, but interviewers will hire someone they want to work with, you know, so don't forget the human element. Don't forget to you know, try and build a rapport with that person, you know, and, and to, to let them sort of learn about you in terms of your personality as well. So you know, that's the main thing I'd say. Don't don't forget the human element to it. You know, you're you're being interviewed and it's a person at the other side of the table, you know, so it's not just going to be down to your skills and experience at the end of it. People will employ who they can see themselves working with. But build a, a commercial CV craft a commercial cover letter uh, th those are two of the the most you know kind of left out uh, elements of the of the whole process um, that they, I can't emphasize that enough and then don't be you know put off or dissuaded by job specs the amount of people that that we place that don't match the job spec you know but have the the personal element as as Claire would say that they they've just got that that thing that the company wants, whether it's attitude, enthusiasm, you know, their continu continual learning experience, you know, don't be put off by the job spec. If you think you can do that job, apply to it. Yes, thank you very much. I don't see any other question coming up, so I think we're going to wrap the discussion up. Uh, Claire and Ryan, thank you so much for joining this morning and for sharing all uh, all our interesting information with us. I'm sure it's made a big difference for a lot of our listeners. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope it was helpful to you. You can now check for more episodes and leave us feedback on iTunes or on our website at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.